any great wisdom come out of the small groups that you'd like to share with the whole group? We won't take a lot of time, but time for a couple people that might want to share something that came out of the big group. what you mean by fret and this is one of the reasons why I had us think about animals because I'm, you know, I don't believe that animals are enlightened or I don't believe animals are necessarily free of suffering but they seem pretty good at and not unnecessarily worrying right right but that's so when you say fret I'm wondering if we have to accept the fretting like, can we have the exposure without the fretting? That's what I meant. What it depends what you mean by fretting. Because maybe we don't need to fret, even though we're exposed or vulnerable or struggling with life experience, that maybe the fretting is extra. Consider the lilies. Yeah. Yeah, you see that in so many different traditions. Uh, you know, somebody pointing to nature... As a, as a metaphor for how we might relate to this particular situation we're in. Mark, um, oh, Deborah. I'm Deborah. I think this relates. It was an experience I had with my son when he was a senior in high school. He was really just kind of falling apart, and he couldn't find, he couldn't figure out why. And so I just sat with him one day and sort of asked him what I felt bad in his body and what it felt like, and finally, I said, what does it want from me? Ask it what it wants from you. And I think it was sort of the, this animal primal survival need that he just couldn't figure out. And finally, he came up with, it just wants to be remembered. I said, well, can you tell it that you will remember it? And it kind of helped him. It kind of diminished his fretting or whatever that anxiety was. He was in that sort of half-down, am I going to survive this transition into the world? And just right. kind of remember it. Yeah. It really was, uh, I will always remember And there's something very deep about what just happened, or what happened in that moment in his mind or in his heart that I think is relevant to this discussion and just generally the practice that we do here. And I'll read a little bit from David Bloy's work around lack. But the reason why that works, and maybe goes back to what you were saying about even physical touch, is that uh, any actual existential problem that we experience means that we've created it here. If we've created it, we can actually address it. So it isn't like he addressed what he thought he was addressing by saying that he'll remember, you know. Um, But he was addressing what he had created and what was causing the problems. And so we can actually address the problems we create ourselves. 
we can actually address the bigger problem. We can actually address the fact that the world changes. You know, everything's changing. But we can address the neurotic sense that it's not okay that things are changing. We can address that problem because we created it. We created the feeling or the sense that there's, it's a problem that everything's changing. That's something we, our mind has created it. And so we can actually address it. So that's a, a concrete example of what we're going to be talking about in just a few seconds. Thanks, Deborah. Sounds like a beautiful moment. Any last thoughts about the small groups that come to mind or other thoughts before we go on? Yeah, Kay. Well, we had kind of a theme in our group of um, kind of summarizing up, you know, about work and that you were kind of working for the end game and that you were kind of, why someone said, work to not work. You know, so you could finally be done. You've earned this yeah. period of your life where you can just reflect and be happy. Um, but that either personal choices or external circumstances or, you know, healthcare has now become a problem and um, the housing market. So people are finding themselves sometimes having done all this work that they didn't always end up loving in the end for this end game that is now disappearing in kind of that sense of betrayal. Yeah. That, uh, or fear, or just the fear of having to change the plan and not quite knowing what to do. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of troubling. I'm sitting here thinking, how can we help the community with that for the members who are, because it, it, it sort of can, but we, you know, in, in a Buddhist sense, we're consuming, necessarily consuming all the time. We're consuming sense experience. You can't help but consume sense experience. We're consuming volition or desire. There's always going to be desire. We're consuming consciousness. We're consuming food. You know, this just comes with life. And it's not that this consuming is itself bad. It's the attitudes that arise around the consumption that can be problematic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that soon, probably right after lunch. Any last thoughts that feel like they should come out before we go on? Yeah, Heather. Just quickly, maybe you can address it later as well. So it seems like this is a particularly challenging society to address those attitudes that come up around consumption. If you happen to get to it later today, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah. Well, I think partly we want to let it break our hearts. Um, Like the implication of pursuing happiness through consumption. And it should break our hearts because of the destruction that entails, that follows from that, uh, that sort of devotion to consumption. But it should also, it can also break our hearts because it's not necessary. It's, It's sort of misplaced. And maybe I'll go there right now because the next thing I wanted to talk about, you know, if we don't turn the, the vulnerable beast into the problem or the wise being, you know, as the sort of salvation. So we're not evaluating. We're just seeing those as potentials or um, just the spectrum of how the mind 
what the mind is, what this life is. You know, all the way at this end, you know, the heart that cares, the heart that can be generous, the heart that can feel, experience joy. This is real. It's not something that we have to construct. And there's vulnerability. And there's, you know, just the very, it's difficult being born. It's difficult growing up. It's difficult dying. All of these transitions, all the way through, it's difficult. It's difficult to have to take the next breath. And it's difficult to feed the body. And then it's difficult to get rid of the wastes in the body. So this is, this um, level or this aspect of reality is as real as this is real. And in a sense, we don't want to judge or like weigh one more than the other. It's all true. All of this is true in our lives. So we're not turning any of that into the demon or the savior. So then what is actually the problem? Sort of begs the question, well then what's the problem? Like why is it that life seems unbearable at times? And you know, technically in Buddhism we'd say, well, wrong view. That we're misunderstanding this range of life, this range of the mind. We misinterpret it or misunderstand it. And one of the people that I've mentioned recently um, <clears throat> that's done a really, I think, good job at unpacking this and understanding it in terms of how it expresses itself socially is David Loy, who's written a, a number of articles and a couple books on lack, the experience, the psychological experience of lack, not having enough, a sense of scarcity, and how that arises. So I want to read several paragraphs uh, from two articles. One was in a book, Mindfulness and Meaningful Work, and he had an article in that uh, book called Buddhism and Money. And then there's another book um, called Hooked. It has a great subtitle, but I forget it now. (laughs) And it's edited by Stephanie Kaza, and he has a chapter called Consuming Time. So I'm going to read a little bit from both of these articles that he wrote. He says, The modern world is so materialistic that we sometimes joke about the religion of Money, the, money theism. But this joke is nothing to laugh about. For more and more people, the value system of money is surplanting traditional religion, religions as part of a profound secular conversion we only dimly understand. And I'm going to be skipping around here. The Buddhist doctrine of no self implies that our fundamental repression is not sex, as Freud thought, nor even death, as existential psychologists think. But the intuition that the ego self does not exist, that our self-consciousness is a mental construction. So this is what we repress. In this case, the repressed intuition returns to consciousness in distorted form. As all the symbolic ways we compulsively try to ground ourselves and make ourselves real in the world, such as power, fame, and of course, money. So it's not that having a job, having money, having success is inherently problematic. What makes it problematic is this pattern where we've, the, like I've been talking about it, the pain that arises, being a vulnerable beast means there's pain. 
being human means there's pain. There's the pain of vulnerability, the pain of growing up, the pain of being hungry, the pain of being cold, the pain of, of knowing that when we're warm it won't always be that way. That's even painful, isn't it? And there's nothing we can do about that pain. It's like now, <clears throat> whatever health we have, whether we're conscious or not, we know it won't always be this way, and that's painful. It's painful to know that we won't always have the health that we have now. And it's not wrong that it's painful. It's just how it is. You know, it's the pain of loss. It's like it's not wrong to feel lost when your mom dies or when you break up, you know, with somebody you love but can't live with or for whatever reason. It's not wrong to feel lost. It's a part of life to feel lost. But what we do is we construct a somebody who thinks that this pain is bad. It's like, like somebody made a mistake. It shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be feeling the pain of vulnerability or the pain of loss. And then in a repressed way, because that pain, that exposure and, this, and the idea, the wrong view, that interprets that pain, takes it personally, then we try to counteract the pain and the idea that it's wrong with something that appears substantial. And this is what David Loy is saying. This is the feeling of lack. And so our devotion to the religion of money theism, as he says, you know, it's really coming out. We're trying to create something real in a, an abstract sense. It's funny how that is. To, to kind of uh, replace or to fill in the sense of lack. So let me read a little bit more here. If there is to be a psychoanalysis of money, it must start from the hypothesis that the money complex has the essential structure of religion, or as you will, the negation of religion, the demonic. So he goes on and he talks about how it really has both you know, our devotion to money, power, job, success. It has both the element of religion, which is we're looking to the money, to the job, to the success to save us. So instead of, in the past, we might have turned to sort of traditional forms of religion and God to save us. Now we turn to success and job and money to save us. And, you know, and the, de- the demonic side of it, he explains, maybe just find that section here. <clears throat> Because the money complex is motivated by a religious need to redeem ourselves, fill in our sense of lack. In Buddhist terms, the demonic results from the sense of self trying to make itself real, that is, objectify itself, by grasping the spiritual in this world. This can be done only unconsciously, which means symbolically, and our most important symbol today is money. So it's it's like... Uh, this idea, this you know, we can't do it consciously because it doesn't make sense. So it has to be done unconsciously where somehow, like we know money's not going to save us, but unconsciously it feels right to devote this life to success and money and, you know, things that we realize aren't going to do it. It's a way of objectifying ourselves. Like, well, I've got money in the bank. 
as if that has to do with this life in, uh, in a substantial way. He quotes or uh, refers to Schopenhauer, who said that uh, money is human happiness in abstraction. And when we're devoted to that, then we lose our capacity to be happy in the concrete, you know, like in the moment, breathing in, breathing out, hearing a bird, walking. It's like one or the other. So when we, when we, you know, made the deal with the devil, then we actually, we actually start having the experience of lack, because we've, we're no longer capable of having fulfillment from being because we've constructed a notion that now we're identified with, a belief that we're identified with, that it's about money. So to, to, to rarefy money as some end, then this moment can't be it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So we, we screw ourselves <laughs> to this... Uh, this devotion or this he calls it a money complex money theism goes on he says um, money is the purest of all symbols because there is nothing in reality that corresponds to it as Midas discovered about gold money in itself is worthless you can't eat it drink it plant it ride in it or sleep under it Yet it has more value than anything else because we use it to define value itself. It can transform into anything. The psychological problem occurs when life becomes focused around the desire for money and an ironic reversal takes place between means and ends. Everything else is devalued in order to maximize a worthless in itself goal because our desires have been fetishized into the symbol, into that symbol. When everything has its price and everyone has his price, the numerical representation of the symbol system becomes more important, more real than the things represented. We end up rejoicing not at a worthwhile job well done or meeting, or meeting a friend or hearing a bird, but at accumulating pieces of paper. To find the method to this madness, we must relate it to the sense of self's sense of lack to the sense of self's sense of lack whose festering keeps us from being able to fully enjoy that bird song just this since we no longer believe in original sin what is wrong with us and how can we hope to get over it today the socially approved explanation our contemporary original sin is that we don't have enough money And, you know, I consider myself, you know, a very sincere practitioner, somebody who's practiced for a long time with some real devotion. And I still see, and now it's, it's mostly humorous, I don't get too fooled by it, but I still see, because it was so deeply programmed into my mind, I still see that thought, if only I had a lot of money, you know? And I see it come up. It, like it arises in my mind if only I had a lot of money here's just a few more sentences from a, this is from that chapter Consuming Time 
So the final irony of my struggle to ground myself, to make myself feel real by filling up my sense of lack, is that it cannot succeed because I am already grounded in the totality. That makes sense? So this is why seeking fulfillment through things like money will never work because it's, it's, it's based on a misperception to begin with. It turns out, I'm reading again, it turns out that my lack is lack only as long as I dread it and attempt to fill it up. Right? It turns out that my lack is a lack only as long as I dread it and attempt to fill it up. Let's just experiment and see if that's true right now. You know, if we, if we really settle into the present moment, being here together, knowing that we're going to be able to eat soon, mm-hmm. that it's warm in here, if we really rest and ground, you know, what's missing from our lives? Is there actually anything in the way of happiness, actually right now in the way of happiness? He goes on, he says, when I cease doing that, my lack transforms into the source of my creative energy, welling up from a fathomless source. Consumerism is so addictive because it seems to offer this worldly, commodified solution to what is basically a spiritual problem. Insofar as we are transformed spiritually, consumerism is revealed as a delusive, way of thinking and acting that can never give us the secular salvation or happiness that it promises. So, <clears throat> this, uh, it's, it will be interesting as we're eating, because food will bring up a lot of that primitive programming, and also being in a relatively new social situation, I mean, those are two of the bigger ones, right? Let's see. We could add public speaking. <laughs> Everybody has to give a 10-minute speech during lunch, you know, and, and a few other things. But probably food and being in relatively new social situations will be enough for us. To notice any sense of lack. And then there will be a choice. Like, we can run with that in the way that we normally run and sort of eat unconsciously as if eating is going to fill up that sense of lack. We do that a lot. I, for one, certainly do that a lot. Or we can talk a lot and try to get people to like us or to be heard or whatever. You know, we might tend to act out socially or be quiet because we're afraid of making a fool out of ourselves and not express ourselves at all. So we can act out our particular social pattern at lunch as a way of dealing with that sense of lack. Or we can look around the room and look in our heart and realize we're all here lacking together. (laughs) And that's okay. You know, that's that human beings, living beings, we we are we inhabit this vulnerable transitory space that we call life. It is an ephemeral thing. And we don't need to cover it up. We don't need to fill it up. The idea that we need to fill it up is a misperception. It's the, the mind out of habit takes the feeling of ephemeralness 
of change. It takes it personally. Oh, this change, this vulnerability, this uh, you know lack of substantiality, it's happening to me. So I'm going to make you all like me because that will make me feel better. Well, that can never address that feeling. They sort of don't exist at the same universe. So no matter how much I make somebody like me or how much food I eat or how much wealth I have or power I have, it doesn't actually address it. And in fact, the more I think it needs addressing, the more real, seemingly real in a personal sense it becomes, that sense of lack. And when we open to it here and see it everywhere, make peace with it everywhere, here and everywhere, then it's completely workable. It actually, like uh, David Loy says, it, it sort of fuels our creative energy to respond more appropriately, more creatively in life. So we can let this be our experiment for lunch today. So it's almost 12.30. What do you think, like an hour and 15 minutes maybe for lunch? And like I suggested, what I'd recommend is just you know, finding ways to break off in pods of three to seven, eight people so you can have conversation. Don't feel like you have to talk about this material, but hopefully it will come up naturally in different ways. Other things, movies and weather and the usual things that give us excuses. It's sort of like our way of saying... I like being with you, you know, saying, what do you think about this weather? <laughs> so we can notice, like, all the different ways we manage the pain, the feeling of, you know, being a vulnerable social being. That's okay. Like, we're going to keep integrating and accepting that, those different strategies, including the strategy to be alone, to avoid sitting down somebody. Oh, I need to go off and get something. I didn't bring my lunch. You know, and that may be the case but then you could still come back with your lunch. <laughs> you, know, you could run to the Birchwood or to the co-op or to the store and get whatever you need and come back and eat with people. So we'll come back at a quarter to two. I'll ring the bell a few minutes before. Feel free, we'll keep this room quiet. Feel free to come and sit in here or if you feel sleep deprived, feel free to come in here and take a nap. You might also want, after you eat, to take a walk with somebody and continue the conversations that way or take a walk by yourself. Um, If you're interested in working and seeing how you can work in 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 a way that's empowering and freeing, you can let me know. Or if Julian's around, you can ask Julian. We'll give you some cleaning jobs to do around the center. Any other nuts and bolts about eating? There are two microwaves, one downstairs in the workroom, one upstairs in the community room. Anything I'm forgetting about the lunchtime? Great, so an hour and 15 minutes.